It's one thing for the military to make an unconstitutional order. It's one thing for the executive to act unconstitutionally, for Congress to act unconstitutionally. It's a whole nother thing for the Supreme Court to then stamp that act as constitutional. Yeah. Because it makes it part of American psyche, of American law. Yes. And it lies about like a loaded weapon for the next president or a next executive who wants to do something like the facts in Korematsu to point to that case and say, look, it is constitutional to round up people in a time of war based solely on their race. Welcome to Harry and the Kipper, a podcast covering current events. We're both attorneys, so we're going to cover some of the relevant legal issues that are affecting our politics, which I think will be particularly useful during this administration's reign. And we're affiliated with my organization called The Resurgent Left. We are focused on a 50-state strategy nowadays. We made a bit of a pivot, and we're looking at red, blue, and purple states at all levels of government, and we're looking to eliminate all safe seats for Republicans. We're also simultaneously looking to flip state legislatures blue, so check us out at theresurgentleft.org. But I say affiliated because this podcast reflects our personal views, not any positions of the organization. Politics moves so quickly nowadays that it's difficult to even write a podcast and be up to date by the time we publish. So please forgive us if there's some updates by the time you hear this. And with that said, let's jump into today's topic. We're talking about Korematsu versus United States. Korematsu versus United States is an old case. It's from, I guess, I guess it's not that old. It's from the 1940s. And we're talking about it today because of the interesting relevance it may have to current events. And Korematsu versus United States is a case about a man named Fred Korematsu, a man who, uh, during the 1940s, following the attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese, he refused to go to the Japanese internment camps, despite um, the orders from military commanders uh, and the president that he go and that all people of Japanese ancestry go to these internment camps. And he was right here in San Leandro, right in the Bay Area where we are right now recording this. That's right. He was uh, born and raised in, in Northern California and he died in Marin County. Yeah. Um, but uh, pursuant to that order in World War during World War II, he was ordered because of his ancestry to go to this internment camp and he refused. And he was convicted of the crime of refusing to comply with uh, this lawful military order. And um, uh, this went all the way to the Supreme Court. And um, it's a sad, a sad chapter in American history. The Supreme Court sustained his conviction and said that the uh, order to intern all Japanese was constitutional. So we wanted to talk about the case itself and what it means today. Uh, so in the opinion of Korematsu, uh, the Supreme Court held on very vague grounds that the government can intern people under special circumstances. Um, it also, that case followed another case, uh, Hirabayashi. Hirabayashi, right. In, Hir- in Hirabayashi, it was about a curfew order. Curfew, that's right. People yes, of Japanese ancestry couldn't you know, leave their homes between certain hours. And you know, interestingly, the Supreme Court this is prior, immediately prior to Korematsu coming down from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court uh, upheld the constitutionality of that curfew order, uh, a curfew that only applied to people of certain racial ancestry. Right, and they did so on the grounds of 
national origin and national security. This is what I want to get into. That what's so interesting about this case and what's so scary about it as well is um, how vague this opinion is. Usually when we're in law school, we're reading opinions that are dissecting the Constitution during our constitutional law classes. And um, it can get really complicated when there's competing values, certain amendments versus others, freedom of speech versus something else. Um, And they can get into the nitty-gritty of precedent and cases before it, what they said about freedom of speech, how valued that form of speech is, etc. So it can get very complicated. This is a bizarrely easy opinion to read. Almost sounds like it was written by people who aren't that familiar with constitutional law or something because it doesn't seem to deal with much competing values. It kind of just says there's war powers. I mean, when you read We're it, at was war. That your... We're at war. Like, you know, that's good enough. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And, like, obviously there's, there's tension or should be tension with equal protection. But the basis of the, the opinion that is still controlling law today, just want to emphasize that, is we are at war – The president and Congress have war powers. And by the way, what happened was first the president passed an executive order, which required that people of Japanese descent on the West Coast go to these internment camps. And then Congress followed it up with the punishment by act. They passed an act that had some sort of punishment for not following the executive order. So both the president and Congress each passed something, which when it goes to before the court, then the court has to decide what presidential powers exist in this world versus congressional powers. And there's not even really any distinction made on that front. It's just kind of like, yeah, both of them are involved in war stuff. It literally (laughs) could have been written by, like, a high schooler. It's crazy to me to read. It's just like they both do war things, and this is a scary time, and it is what it is. I think an important point that I want to emphasize is that this case, Korematsu versus the United States, is still good law in the United States. It has never been overruled. Yeah. Part of the reason is that the Supreme Court can probably only overrule itself, you know, if a similar situation arises where people are being interned. It implicates similar facts to Korematsu. Then maybe they could explicitly overrule Korematsu. Or maybe they would. would maybe they? they wouldn't. Yeah, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And so th- we should talk a little bit more about that. That's the problem. So the Supreme Court doesn't get to just say today, sorry about that, we overrule. They need a similar case or controversy. That's the way courts work. Right now, that's the law of the land, Korematsu, and they aren't actually – they're not able to overturn it until something dramatic happens, like an internment again of some kind proposed by somebody, Um, and then they have the chance to rule on this matter again. Until then, it sits as law. I mean, and the logic of it that, you know, national security in a time of war is paramount, and under this case – is so beyond the concerns of due process and equal protection that basically if the military says it and it's a time of war, like, tough cookies. They're not even worth a mention. Yeah, (laughs) tough cookies for your due process rights. I mean, we're in a time of war. That's what Justice Justice Black was saying. And that's the controlling opinion, meaning that's law. So the majority opinion in Korematsu was written by Justice Hugo Black. Um, There were a number of – there was a concurring opinion and a number of dissenting opinions – and I'd like to just talk briefly about uh, the majority opinion of Hugo Black and, and one dissenting opinion in particular by uh, Justice Jackson. Uh, so, so without get, getting too much into the to sort of the, the nitty-gritty of the logic and the facts of, of Justice Black's opinion, it basically came down to uh, this is a time of war. 
And yes, due process and equal protection matter. Sure, sure, sure. They matter. And if this were a time of peace, maybe things would be different. Then but... we could obey the Constitution properly. But Well, so, so they, they took this military, quote, exclusion order, like Justice Black said, and, and made it lawful. They said this is a lawful exercise of executive power, uh, despite the fact that it targets one race specifically and has them leave their home and go to what is essentially a concentration camp. And, you know, the dissent here was was disgusted with this line of reasoning. You know, Justice Jackson's dissent is is very powerful. Uh, You know, one quote in particular about the impact of Korematsu and, and its impact on the future for future generations. He said, quote, The principle of Korematsu then lies about like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. Every repetition embeds that principle more deeply in our law and thinking and expands it to new purposes. His point here is that it's one thing for the military to make an unconstitutional order. It's one thing for the executive to act unconstitutionally, for Congress to act unconstitutionally. It's a whole nother thing for the Supreme Court to then stamp that act as constitutional. Yeah. Because it makes it part of American psyche, of American law. Yes. And it lies about like a loaded weapon for the next president or a next executive who wants to do something like the facts in Korematsu to point to that case and say, look, it is constitutional to round up people in a time of war based solely on their race. And what's scary is it's the last bastion of hope for people who care about these civil liberties. That's the counter-majoritarian role of the courts is crucial. I mean, that's the point. So, like, when people get riled up, I mean— People get riled up about things all the time and populism reigns. And that's what the courts are supposed to do is be able to step in and say, no, this is inappropriate. We have a constitution. Um, and what's scary is like the lack of uh, deference given to equal protection and due process is really troubling precedent. Because when the next problem erupts, like another internment or something – now all of the Supreme Court justices are reading an opinion and being like, sorry, I mean, this is precedence, and they've hardly mentioned those competing values. So as far as I can tell, the test for when something like this is constitutional, national security really, really outweighs those concerns. I think one of the problems with having a Supreme Court or a court case validate what are pretty abhorrent actions you know, interning people based solely because of their ancestry, someone who was born and raised in the United States, no question about his loyalty to this country. One of the most troubling things is, uh, as Justice Jackson said in his dissent, is every case sort of builds upon each other. Right. Hirabayashi was, uh, was the case that preceded Korematsu mm-hmm. and said, you know, the military has promulgated this curfew order. And Hirabayashi was very clear. Our stamp of constitutionality Uh, only goes as far as the curfew order. We are not opining on anything, any stronger measures taken against people of Japanese descent. In fact, they, you know, they may yet be unconstitutional if they come before this court. Fast forward to Korematsu. They point to Hirabayashi and they say, hey, "Hey, look, Hirabayashi said we could discriminate on the basis of a race. So, you know, based on the principle of Hirabayashi, even though Hirabayashi was very clear that it was very narrowly tailored to the curfew order. Yeah. Based on the principle of Hirabayashi, uh, we're holding this exclusion order constitutional. And what's worse uh, is uh, Korematsu 
wasn't clear about being narrow in any respect. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's not even as though you have to go through any mental gymnastics. You're just like, no, no, no. That's, it, it just said, like, this is fine. It's a national security issue. So why, why are we talking about Korematsu? I mean, this is like an interesting history lesson. It's sure. an interesting look at what is good law and what's not. A very tragic page in American history. Yeah. But I think part of the reason we're talking about it today is we're just trying to put this back on people's radars is that American law has a stain in it. Yeah. It has many stains, but yeah. Korematsu seems to me one that's very relevant today. Yeah. And I would say we're talking about Korematsu because history is more cyclical than maybe we think. You know, a, a, another good example of how history is cyclical is that our Constitution, the 1789 Constitution that was adopted, uh, has a very clear restriction on the powers of government. And it says, quote, No attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. And what that basically means is the, the 1789 Constitution was a reaction to some of the things that were happening in England where, you know, some person would be convicted of treason and all of their descendants would be like forever stained with the treason of their like great great grandfather so the the founding fathers put into our constitution that you know just because of your ancestry like you shouldn't lose rights mm -hmm. and he, in koromatsu just because somebody had japanese ancestry they were forced by law to go to an internment camp so you know 1787 comes around in 1944 and yeah. maybe it comes around again in the 21st century. Yeah. We're at least, I mean, we're hearing the language, right? I mean, we can only go by the signs so far. It's been about two months into this presidency, but we're hearing, we're hearing the right language. They're setting the tone, I guess is the way I'd put it. And what concerns me, what's, what's worse about today is it's even easier to brand people as being the enemy because there's no like clear nation state that people are fighting for anymore, which means it's hard to prove your loyalty or disloyalty, which means the government has a pretty strong say in saying who's good and who's bad. And just to note, we don't we haven't had any threats so far of any kind uh, during this Trump presidency. Um, no major foreign attacks since 9-11. And already we're shaking our system to our core by threatening the legitimacy of institutions. And specifically, I'm talking about the president denigrating the court system. Uh, we've banned people based on their national origin. We're rounding up people, uh, undocumented people, some of which actually some of them are here legally and they're getting rounded up anyways. And racial animus is on the rise in this country. It's now on the rise institutionally as well. We had 457 hate groups, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, in 1999, and we now have 1,018. Oh, no, sorry. In 2011, we had 1,018, so over double the amount of total hate groups in this country. So, again, just returning to the idea that history is cyclical and that we are on a bad path at the moment, and it's something we really need to be aware of and be proactive about. So this may sound very alarmist you know but it's only alarmist until it happens and this is the same this always happens the people who are being alarmist are accused of being alarmist and then things happen we were alarmist to suggest donald trump could win the presidency in 2015 that was crazy talk and then and then and now here we are and now it's normalized and we don't know what this country is going to look like after if something were to happen a terrorist attack were to happen here but there may be a lot of things that you think are crazy talk or alarmist 
that we're reflecting on as being now a normal part of our everyday life here that are very scary things. I'll close with a a quote from uh, one of the dissents from Murphy in this case. And the reason I want to read the dissents, I want you to understand that there were people during this time that were just like us, that were very fearful of racial prejudice being institutionalized. It's not, this is not a thing for its time, and now today we're much more learned than they were. There were people saying the same things we are today, and here's a quote from a dissent in Korematsu. I dissent, therefore, from this legalization of racism. Racial discrimination in any form and in any degree has no justifiable part whatever in our democratic way of life. It is unattractive in any setting. It is utterly revolting amongst a free people who have embraced the principles set forth in the Constitution of the United States. All residents of this nation are kin in some way by blood or culture to a foreign land, yet they are primarily and necessarily a part of the new and distinct civilization of the United States. They must accordingly be treated at all times as the heirs of the American experiment and as entitled to all the rights and freedoms guaranteed by the Constitution. All right, well, thank you guys for listening, and please check out our website at theresurgentleft.org and get involved today. And also, please follow us on Twitter because our Twitter game is super weak right now, and it's at resurgent underscore left. Special thank you to our producer, Vika Aronson. I'm Kip Muller. And I'm Harry Connell. And remember to stay angry and stay inspired. <laughs>